Good afternoon, London. How are we doing? It's a Monday. Mondays can be tough. They're not always the easiest. Try and roll yourself out of bed, make your coffee, get out the door, get back to work into that routine for the week after what was hopefully a lovely weekend for you. I know that it's, like I said, it's not always easy, but we are here to make your Monday a little bit better with our chit chat with you talking about the topics that matter here in the city and quite frankly around the world. Borders don't confine us on this talk show. No, they do not. We can talk to anyone anywhere if we really want to, so long as they have a phone line that we can get to them at. Uh, What I will say is that my voice may be surprising you. And you know what? I'm on a different side of the talk show booth than I'm usually on. I'm on the talk side, actually. Usually I'm over where uh, fantastic producer Matt McInnes is sitting. That's where I read the news from usually. Uh, But Mike Stubbs, hardworking ever awesome, ever wonderful, is off on vacation this week. And they've uh, the powers that be have deemed it so that I can fill in again. I did it last year over the summer, and I guess I did well enough that they figured it were, I was trustworthy with the microphone to just riff on things and ideas and different stories that are happening. So uh, I am with you for the next, well, today and the following four days. So right through until Friday. And uh, hopefully we'll have lots of great discussions about what's happening in the city. And like I said, around the world, who knows what could happen? Maybe we'll talk to someone in Timbuktu or uh, in Paris, France, who knows? Uh, Later on in the show, we will be talking with someone who was just recently in Paris, France. That's Megan Walker with the London Abused Women's Centre. She was over for the W7 Summit last week, so we're going to talk with her about that. We will also chit-chat very soon with Councillor Phil Squire. He is uh, the chair of the Civic Works Committee. They're going to be talking about the Thames Valley Parkway at their meeting tomorrow and joining up the two sides that have long been disconnected, thanks to the Thames River. There's about a kilometer stretch where cyclists and pedestrians have had to dipsy doodle around and try to get to the other side, but no more, according to this plan that's going to the Civic Works Committee. Uh, we'll also talk about 911 and the ability for people across the province to call that number when they need help in an emergency. You might be surprised to know that not everyone has access to it. I was stunned. I was floored, as was the majority of the newsroom when they heard about that. So we have a lot of great topics coming up uh, over the course of the next couple of hours. First, though, we do have uh, some sad news to deliver that you heard with Jacqueline LaBelle at the one o'clock newscast, and it's that Fred Kingsmill has passed away. He was a uh, uh, local London business icon, really. He he sadly passed away at the age of 90 yesterday morning. Uh, his son, Tim, confirmed to 980 CFPL this afternoon that uh, he died early in the morning, surrounded by family, natural causes. Uh, still, though, it is... You know, a, a terrible thing whenever uh, someone is is lost in a community. But certainly, Fred Kingsmill is just a, a pillar of the business community and uh, you know the charitable community as well in the city. And uh, his his loss and the news of it is now hitting people quite quite hard. Uh, and we had a chance to uh, chat with Cheryl Miller. I did just uh, just and and we're we're talking about you know the impact that Fred has had not only on her personally but her views of of him on on the whole in terms of London's. Uh, you know, business community. And she she has some some thoughts and she joins us now on the line. Cheryl is is a former city councillor, but all around uh, integral part of London's community in general. Cheryl, thank you so much for being here today. Cheryl, thank you so much for, for joining us today to talk about uh, Fred Kingsmill and, and the legacy that, that he leaves. Uh, how did you know Fred? When, when did you first come into contact with him? Well, I think I first met Fred when I was a real young, young child, um, because as a treat, we go downtown shopping because that's all you, that was our shopping district. Um, but I met him in the store and he was, 
he was the kind of person that would talk to you. Would would and when we were finished talking, because I was a yacker back then, my mom said to me, "You know who that man is?" I said, "No." She said, "He owns the store." So that's the kind of person. Fred always was. I met him through the LDBA and the Downtown Business Association. Um, he was a stalwart anchor in that downtown. He kept our downtown thriving. But not only did he do that, but he was such a, a charitable, giving man. Fred always believed, more importantly, to give, not about getting. Uh, there'll, there'll never be anybody else like Fred Kingsmill. He was one of a kind, and it's sad news. Certainly. And, you know, I, I had a, a very brief interaction with Mr. Kingsmill once a few years ago when I was still reporting. Uh, and I mentioned it off the top of the show there that I was at uh, the announcement for Fanshawe taking over the mm-hmm. Kingsmill building to make it into its new campus. And he just seemed like a genuinely lovely gentleman, very, very sweet and, and would take the time to chat with you. And uh, that's that's what we are obviously are hearing from you and uh, other individuals as they learn of this news. Uh, 90 years old uh, to have passed away, you know, it sounds like he's had an amazing life and, and just an immense impact on the downtown and, and business in general in London. Oh, absolutely. Um, the life of, of London, the growth of London, uh, the compassion of London. He's had his hand in everything. You, you just got to talk to people who needed uh, devices, wheelchairs, uh, aids, canes, whatever. Fred was always willing to help somebody out. And it wasn't for for dollars or cents. It was because Fred was the old school. It's so important to care about people if you want people to care about you. That is a timeless sentiment, I feel like. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that um, a lot of people here in London, family, friends, and just in general residents of the city will will carry that forward and that, that mantra because it's, it's, it's a good one. And, and I, we can all stand to be a little bit kinder to everybody and, and to, uh, you know, no matter their circumstances or, or why we, we bump into them in, in our lives as we go about things. But uh, certainly the idea of, of being just a little bit kinder to everyone we come across is, is a good one. Absolutely. It's, it's the rule to live by. And to, to spend any time with him was always a pleasure. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a huge hole and no one's going to fill it. And that's the sad thing is, is as people pass on, another generation takes over and the changes are, are subtle, but they're, you, don't, you can't replace Fred. He's one of a kind. Sort of like, you know, Kings Mill itself, the building, uh, in its iconic status, and it's it was a, a stalwart feature of the downtown, and it obviously it's been it's morphed into a new a new generation and a, and a new purpose, I suppose, new incarnation, if you will. Uh, but but the legacy is still there, and and in its original form, it was just one of those places that uh, uh, it was a landmark, and people always looked forward to going there. And and you probably could say the same about people interacting with with uh, Fred himself that it was always it was always a pleasure and. And like you said, talking to him as, uh, as as a child, you know, he took time to to speak to everybody, not just uh, adults or whomever. It was even even the little folks. I used to always take my children down there. It was important for them to see that in business you can be kind, um, uh, you can you can be giving, uh, and most importantly, by doing that, you can be very successful. 
Yeah, that's honestly, it's 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 messages like that that really do uh, imprint on people as they grow up, uh, and it's those early experiences that will guide us as we grow up into into adults and and how we behave out in the world. So I'm glad that uh, so many people will have had those chances to to interact with with Fred and uh, you know impart those lessons to their own kids as as they grew up. So uh, Cheryl, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us about your memories of Fred Kingsmill, and uh, you know we're, we're, our condolences. Uh, to anyone who knows him and to his family from the station to to everyone, because it is certainly a loss. Thank you so much. I appreciated having the the ability to uh, reminisce. Thank you. And that was Cheryl Miller, former city councillor, sharing her thoughts about the passing of Fred Kingsmill, the founder of Kingsmill's downtown on Dundas Street in London, passed away yesterday early in the morning, surrounded by his family at the age of 90 of natural causes. It's been a day of losses, really, if we think about other iconic names in the world. Doris Day passed away earlier today. That was a word that came from one of her chair. Charity, excuse me, that she was associated with. She passed away at the age of 97. She had one of the biggest stars of all time in Hollywood, that golden era a lot of people uh, associate her with. And uh, she's known for her hit song, Que Sera, Sera, whatever will be, will be. So certainly it's a loss to the entertainment world as well today. So this, uh, our thoughts are with everyone who feels those losses. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we will be chatting with Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire about the Thames Valley Parkway and the work that's going on to join the two halves of it. We'll be right back on London Live. Welcome back to the show. It's your Monday afternoon. Hope it's going well for you. Mondays can be tricky, as we said. Something else that's been tricky has been navigating the Thames Valley Parkway for some individuals. There is a gap that I I feel and I've learned has been quite a problem for people who like to use it in between, say, Ross Park and the North London Athletic Fields, which are more in the area of, like, Adelaide. Uh, There's this break. It's about a kilometer long, and then people who are biking and rollerblading and walking, they kind of have to go off the path through onto some major roads just to get back onto it again. So it's been... point of contention and a sore spot for people for quite some time, but there is hope. Guess what? There is a report going from city staff to the Civic Works Committee tomorrow at their meeting uh, to look at an actual proper fix for this. It's going to cost some money, about $7.5 million, which is more than they initially uh, believed it was going to be. But there, there's some some provincial cash that's going to come along with that. It's going to help out. So who we have now on the line is Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire, and he is the chair of the committee, and he's going to tell us more about it. Phil, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. We appreciate it. Good to be with you. So you are the chair of the Civic Works Committee, and tomorrow you're going to be talking about the Thames Valley Parkway, specifically the gap and bridging that gap. Uh, for people who aren't too familiar with um, with this process and, and this issue, if you will, uh, give us a little bit of a synopsis of, of what's gone on with this. Sure. So what we're trying to do and what we will do with this this project is, is fully connect the uh, Thames Valley Parkway um, to areas of London that just aren't connected at this point in time because of the river crossing. So what we're trying to do is make sure that you can go really from the uh, northeast area of the city now and connect there and get all the way through the city, downtown, out to Springbank Park using the Thames Valley Parkway, whether you're a cyclist, whether you're a runner, 
um, this kind of glass filling of the gap is hugely important, and it would connect about 50,000 people to the Thames Valley Parkway who aren't fully connected now. So for anyone, again, who maybe doesn't know much of the history of it, why is it that there was like this kilometer gap in the first place? What, 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 what made it come to be that there was one section and one section, but nothing in the middle? Yeah, so the, the problem is that, that really it's the river, and it's the river crossings. And at some point in time, we had to have a river, a river crossing to connect one side to the other that wasn't a roadway for cars. So uh, as it developed, that gap has always been there, and we've never get, gotten around to, to solving it. And now we have the opportunity to access funds outside of the municipalities from the province that, that's going to make a substantial contribution, about 50% of the cost of the project, um, that we're going to be able to do it. And the other part is, quite frankly, is um, we had to find the ability to access this through private land. So a lot of the lands that are owned in this area are privately owned. And so we had to uh, negotiate to get uh, uh, access from Western University, Scouts Canada, the Sisters of St. Joseph's. We had to do that. We had to do all of the uh, environmental assessments, and uh, so we've tackled it now, and it's, it's going to be done, and it'll, it'll create that final connection. That's great. And so we're looking at, a, what, a roughly $7.5 million price tag on the project, which is a bit of an increase yep. from, the, from the last estimate, right? Yeah. They, in my experience at City Hall, once you go through all of the environmental assessments, the construction that you need to do, and the tendering process, you get the bids that you get, and uh, so we've ended up with bids, and we are taking the lowest bid, of course. Uh, we're also accessing over $3 million in money outside of the municipality. So, yes, it's an expensive project. Yes, I'm worried that it will stay within budget. Uh, anybody who does work uh, in this area knows that it's really, you know, things can develop that put us outside of budget, but, I, but I'm hopeful uh, that we'll be able to finish this off. It would have been great if we could do it with one bridge, but we can't do it with one bridge because of environmental and construction concerns. So, uh, yes, it's a big project, but uh, but it's important to get it done. Now, I guess it's, uh, uh, as you mentioned, you've got uh, over $3 million in funding coming from the province. Uh, any concerns, given the climate currently in terms of uh, provincial funding, uh, that that might be trimmed at all? Or is this is that $3 million or the, whatever the figure is, is it set in stone? Well, I wish you, you shouldn't say that out loud. I don't want anybody to, to even <laughs> think about it. that. So, no, I, I mean, I, I, anything is possible, but this is money that's, that's been uh, uh, put into an infrastructure program. The money is there. The only condition that we have uh, right now is that we've got to use it sort of within a certain date. So um, we've got to get it done within the next couple of years to, to get this money. And I think that's one of the reasons we're doing it now. Um, you know, when people talk about the cost, obviously, um, it is high, and uh, I'm not one that loves to spend huge amounts of money. But to access that provincial money, we really need to do it now. And uh, I'm not worried that we're going to lose that money, but anything is possible. Right. We don't want to jinx anything. I just figured I no, would ask. Don't jinx it. <laughs> well, knock on wood, all the wood that we have in the office, we'll, we'll knock on that. It'll be fine. Um, the other <laughs> question for you, as you mentioned, uh, in terms of a bit of a timeline, we have to use that provincial cash within a certain amount of time. What's the overall project timeline? Like if, if everything passes at, at committee tomorrow, then it gets the green light at council. Uh, when might we conceivably see shovels in the ground? Yeah, I think oh, I think that'll be uh, that'll be fairly fairly soon that we'll start shovels in the ground. I don't see why that wouldn't happen. So, 
construction is going to begin uh, in June, so it's fairly soon. Um, construction on the pathway will begin in September. And uh, the construction of the pedestrian bridges will actually be done over the winter because of environmental concerns So, in, in 220. So this will be operational, from what I understand, in about uh, just over a year. It'll be by September 2020, we will be using uh, these bridges. So it's a very aggressive timeline, but I hope we can stick to it. I think it'll be really great for those individuals who, uh, obviously people who have long used the Thames Valley Parkway, who have talked about these concerns but not being able to get to the other side very easily. It takes a bit of dipsy-doodling, if you will. Um, this yeah. should increase the number of people who are, are interested in taking it because it just takes out a little bit of the hassle and it's it's now more straightforward. Yeah, I mean, it's a pathway that I use myself regularly. And of course, uh, I notice uh, these issues when I'm running or when I'm cycling, that there's there's parts of the of the pathway where you have to leave the area entirely and use city streets and and that sort of thing, and that's not something that that, that really encourages uh, biking right across the city. The Thames Valley Parkway is hugely important for for our cycling infrastructure because it's really the backbone of getting people going all across the city using a a path. So everything we do in terms of bike paths on streets relies on us completing this. So. I'm pretty excited about it, and uh, it's really, uh, it really will be a good project. It's one that, that really needs to be done. Would we have liked to have done it with one bridge? Sure, but that just wasn't possible, so we're doing what we can. All right. Well, Phil, thank you so much uh, for taking the good time to, to with talk you. with us about this, and I'm sure that we'll, we'll just roll forward. <laughs> we will roll forward, and I look forward to seeing you, Jess, on your rollerblades or your <laughs> bike or whatever, and we'll... We'll give each other a high five as we pass each other. Perfect. Sounds perfect. I will look forward to that. (laughs) Good. Have a good one. You too. Thank you. Now, I will be honest, it's more than likely that Phil and I will cross paths and I'll just be on my feet. I'll be walking because I'm I'm not so much a cyclist. Bicycles, they make me a little nervous. I'm more comfortable on two feet or four wheels in a, in, than on two wheels. Bicycles and I, we have a we have a rough history. My balance isn't all that great. And there were a lot of scraped knees when I was little. And oh, let's just say I'm a big fan of safety equipment, helmets, knee pads, elbow pads, maybe. I don't know. It's been a really long time since I've, I've been on a bike. But I do enjoy walking quite a lot. I'm out a lot in my neighborhood of Wortley Village and uh, taking in all the sights and sounds there doing my little walks. But uh, yeah, no, it's great news for anyone who is out on those paths a lot. And there are a ton of Londoners making use of them, which is great news. So the Thames Valley Parkway is on track to being reunited with each each half is going to be bridged. The gap will be bridged, which would be fantastic news for everyone who enjoys being out on those paths because they're a great resource. So hopefully there will be more people taking advantage. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about one of those services and things that uh, a lot of people use on the day-to-day across Canada and even here in London. Hundreds of calls come in every single day to 911. But imagine if you went to pick up the phone in an emergency, dialed the number, and it didn't go anywhere. Or you got a message back saying, nope. This is not active. This is not in service. Well, that's a reality for thousands of Ontarians across the province in in more remote communities. And there is an NDP MPP who is trying to change that. And we're going to talk with her coming up after the break on London Live.
Good afternoon. It is 1.30. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Cloudy skies and 7 degrees. Fred King's Mills being remembered as a cornerstone of London's downtown. The iconic businessman, best known as the former owner of the former King's Mills department store on Dundas, died early yesterday of natural causes surrounded by family at the age of 90. Former City Councilor Cheryl Miller tells 980 CFPL she first met Fred when she was a child visiting the store, but she later got to know him through business associations. He was a stalwart anchor in that downtown. He kept our downtown thriving. But not only did he do that, but he was such a, a charitable, giving man. Fred always believed more importantly to give, not about getting. Uh, there'll, there'll never be anybody else like Fred Kingsmill. He was one of a kind. Kingsmills is survived by his wife, two children, three grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. More importantly to give, not about getting. Uh, There'll never be anybody else like Fred Kingsmill. He was one of a kind. Kingsmills is survived by his wife, two children, three grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. Funeral arrangements have not yet been made. Police in Stratford have identified the woman who was killed after being hit by a vehicle in the Walmart parking lot yesterday. A 63-year-old Stratford woman was taken to hospital where she was later pronounced dead after she was hit in the parking lot around 11 yesterday morning. Police say the victim parked her vehicle in an accessible spot near the main entrance and was hit between her car and the cart return. Stratford police have identified her as 63-year-old Hedwig Sophia Harris. She goes by the name Evelyn. Police say charges are pending against a 30-year-old Stratford woman. The deepening trade battle between the U.S. and China has sent the Dow Industrials down by 680 points in early afternoon trading. This morning, China announced tariff hikes on $60 billion of American goods in retaliation for President Donald Trump's latest penalties on Chinese products. The Chinese tariffs target everything from batteries to spinach to coffee. Investors are selling trade-sensitive shares, with with chipmakers leading the big declines in technology. Heavy equipment makers Deere and Caterpillar are driving the losses in the industrial sector. Toronto Public Health says it's investigating two confirmed cases of measles. The agency says both cases are travel-related and involve adults. It also says members of the public may have been exposed to the measles virus in several locations on May 5th and May 8th. Those include locations between uh, Pearson International Airport Terminal 1, two Air Canada flights, and the Toronto Zoo. The agency is reminding residents to ensure they're protected against measles before traveling as the virus is circulating in many countries. You're listening to 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. Yes, indeed, I am Jess Brady. I'm filling in for Mike Stubbs this week. He is off on some very much earned vacation time. So he will be back next Monday, one week, or rather, no, next week is a holiday. Got a long, long weekend coming up. That's fantastic news. Do you ever forget about that? Where you have, you know, you have like a holiday or a vacation is coming and then you forget and then you're all of a sudden reminded and you're like, yes, long weekend vacation. It's a nice little surprise every once in a while. So there you have it. A little surprise for you in case you had also forgotten that it's Victorian Day long weekend. Well, before we went to break, I was talking a little bit about 911 and the idea that not everyone in this province has access to it. And it just blows my mind that this is still a thing. In 20, It's 2019. How do we not all have access to it? 
it just reminds me of, uh, you ever get those dreams where you are trying to move, you're trying to run, someone's chasing you, or you're trying to run to help somebody. I, I was a lifeguard when I was like in my late teens and into my 20s. And I still have dreams where there's somebody in the pool that I need to go help and I can't run to them or I can't blow my whistle to like get other people to help me. Uh, I know in the newsroom, a, a bunch of us have had dreams where we're trying to fill out newscasts or try and talk and we can't. And it's, it's terrible. It's an awful, awful feeling. But that's kind of how I think of this, where if you're calling for 911, you're getting your phone out, picking up your your handset at home if you still have a landline, and you're trying to dial 911, and there's uh, an automated message that plays and says, please call this number instead or call your operator for help, you are going to feel just stuck. You are in moments of panic where presumably seconds count and they can you know, lead to someone losing their life potentially if you don't act fast enough. And the idea that the service that is meant to help you in those moments is not available, that just is insane. Now, France Genena, who's the new Democrat MPP for Nickel Belt, which is up in northern Ontario, Sudbury area, she is trying to make sure that this is no longer a thing in Ontario. Uh, she has introduced a private member's bill called Bill 75. It's the 911 Everywhere in Ontario bill. That's what it's called. And she joins us now to talk about what this is all about and what she wants to do. Thank you so much for joining us today, France. It's, it's a pleasure to speak with you. My pleasure to talk to you. So tell me a little bit about the inspiration for the bill that you've put forward in the legislature, 911 Everywhere. So the first part of the bill was really um, a constituent of mine, Helena Snyder, whose husband had a heart attack. When she called 911, she was shocked to hear uh, that this number was not in service, uh, that the emergency number you had called is not in service, please dial zero. Uh, she couldn't believe it. She hung up in, in dismay, dial zero. Uh, the operator uh, didn't know what she was talking about, told her to dial 911, and uh, precious time was wasted uh, while she finally figured out, uh, ran to a neighbor to come and help her, and, uh, and yeah, disaster struck. Um, she tried really hard to find out how come 911 did not work at our house. Uh, she ended up uh, in my office, and then we figured out that 911 doesn't work in many, many homes. Uh, so that was the, the impetus to start the bill. I think that that's uh, a very common reaction. Like when we saw your uh, the, the statement talking about that this bill was going forward, that you were going to present it in the legislature, there was a lot of shock around our newsroom, especially thinking, my goodness, not everywhere in this province has access to 911 because it's it's one of those basic, um, basic points of messaging in terms of emergency services. In an emergency, you call 911, three digits, that's it. It's supposed to be simple because in an, an emergency, you're panicking, right? Like you need something that is uh, quick and easy and is going to connect you with the help that you need. Whereas your constituent, as you were saying, I mean, found herself in a nightmare situation. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And since I discovered this, I, I put messages out on social media and I would tell you that my inbox is full of uh, horror stories, some of them catastrophic, of people who had no idea that 911 didn't work. Uh, they were tourists, they were snowmobilers, they were people camping, they were all sorts of uh, situation and residents who 
um, we assume that 911 worked everywhere. We teach it to our kids in pre-kindergarten and kindergarten. We've all seen the video of a little kid barely tall enough to reach a, a table but dialing 911 and saving somebody's life. Uh, but yet the reality is very different for a lot of people um, where... Uh, um, as soon I, I'm from Northern Ontario, as soon as you go out of the city of Sudbury, 911 doesn't work. You have to memorize uh, 1888 and 1877 numbers. Um, and those, just through my riding for the, uh, I would say, two and a half hours drive north of Sudbury, you go through uh, three different set of 1-800 numbers. Uh, nobody can remember all of that. No way. And especially in an emergency, like at the best of times, <laughs> maybe exactly. you could remember one, but uh, three, I don't think so. <laughs> no, no, no. And and they keep changing. The police stays the same throughout uh, 1-877-310-1122. I have now memorized it. Uh, but for ambulance and for fire, the, the uh, change, uh, as I said, uh, many times and throughout the north, there's many, many 1-800 number. It doesn't have to be that way. Other provinces have made the decisions that all of those uh, numbers would be, um, like 911 would be uh, called forward to those numbers in, in those different areas. And uh, the technology exists. Uh, it has been done in other provinces. And I think it's high time that Ontario does the same yeah, I think that, uh, you know, everyone would be on board with that. I mean, it's it's one of those initiatives that uh, it would sound like people would automatically get on board with because it's just so common sense. And it's it's shocking that it hasn't been done before. Um, France, can you give us any insight as to what the issue is, why this is like uh, the situation is as it is currently? It, it's a matter of infrastructure, correct? Uh, not that much. It's a uh, question of, uh, so in Ontario, it all goes through Bell. Uh, Bell has this uh, requirement that if you are to have 911, you have to provide all three services, that is police, ambulance, and fire uh, uh, first response. Uh, so in um, in some areas, you always have police because the OPP covers you, and you always have ambulance. Here again, because the province provide ambulance services. Uh, but in some communities, there is no fire. Uh, so if you're on a highway and there's nobody around, it could be that there's no... Uh, so there's more like technical um, and a requirement that has that has been put either by uh, Bell, who handles it all, or by uh, the call takers, uh, that really does not need to be there. And in some communities uh, that don't have uh, fire, um, they just put the MNR emergency fire number because, again, Ministry of Natural Resources, if we have a forest fire, we'll cover you no matter where you are, and sells it. Uh, there are ways to, uh, to make the system work, uh, but... Uh, you're dealing with areas of the province where there is no municipalities, there is no champion to put this forward. So in order for it to work, it has to be the province who becomes the champion, who sits down with Bell and says, you will make that happen. Like uh, Alberta was the uh, last one to uh, to do this for the entire province. So within municipalities, usually municipalities are the one that handled it. But outside of municipalities, then the province has to pick up the slack, and they never did. But the, the technology exists. It's not expensive. It's just a question of getting it done. 
And that was my next question was if there was a rough estimate in terms of, of how much this might cost to do. Uh, because, I mean, when you're thinking of uh, the amount that it costs when there's an emergency, yes, it is. Obviously, there's a, there's a dollar figure attached to that. But we're talking about people's lives. So if we're going to invest in anything, this would seem like a logical thing to spend those dollars on. <laughs> Um, I, I fully agree with you. I would say the cost usually turns out to about fifteen cents a month on your uh, on your phone bill, and for everybody who uses a cell phone, we already all pay this fees. Uh, no matter who your cell phone is with in Canada, we all pay it. It's just that we don't know that we're paying it. And for the people who have to memorize those one eight hundred number, the fees is about fifteen cents a month on their phone bill. Okay, and so yeah, the the cost then of of implementing the system, it's not necessarily a line item in the uh, Ontario budget. It's just kind of trickles down into how how Bell works with its customers and uh, other other phone providers. Then, correct, and mandating uh, Bell to make this service available, you have to sit down and tell Bell. So when this tower goes off, this is the one. 888 number that you forward it to, and here's where it's a call taker. And, and somebody has to sit down with Bell and give them that information uh, so that they know uh, when, you know, like when those lines go off uh, for 911, here's the 1 800 number that, that you forward it to. But there is nobody to sit with Bell uh, to have those conversations, so it just sits there and stays with the 1 800 number that that none of us know and all of us want to get rid of. Yeah, to me, it just seems like I'm surprised that there aren't more disaster situations that have come up. I think it's very lucky that, uh, you know, we haven't seen a, a rash of these cases. And, and perhaps it's just a case of, of, of people not knowing that it's uh, a big enough issue that they could talk about. Like you've said, uh, the public response since word has gotten out about this bill. I mean, you've received a lot of messages. Oh, I have. I have. Uh, many people have discovered most of the time in their times of needs uh, something went wrong, somebody dialed 911, and then they're all in shock of what happened, and, and they put it together. Somebody puts you in the back of a pickup truck and brings you to Timmins, uh, you know, like they may do, but it was always the same thing. Nobody knew. Or it's a tourist who don't know, and then a local will come up and, you know, get his little piece of paper out of his wallet and say, here's the number we are to dial now. And But it, it doesn't have to be that way. It has to change. Let's not wait till uh, more and more people and family get hurt. Uh, we can do this. Uh, we got unanimous support in the House for second reading. Everybody who spoke about it spoke in favor, uh, so I'm encouraged. Uh, but uh, camping season is upon us. Lots of people go outside of the big city to go camping, canoeing, pick blueberries, um, whatever you like to do. Um, and uh, it would be nice to know that if something goes wrong, I don't wish any harm upon anyone, but Sometimes things do go wrong, that 911 will be there for you. The service are there. It's really hard to connect to them that needs to be fixed. Well, it seems like it's, uh, you know, uh, like I said before, and like you've said, it seems like there's good support going into, uh, you know, moving forward with the, the process of, of making the bill uh, law and, and, and making it fully legislated. What is, I guess, the next step then in, in terms of the, the timeline? What are we looking at? If things go well and, uh, you know, best case scenarios kind of play out, uh, when could this conceivably come into effect? 
I would say probably if everything goes perfectly good, we could have it done within the next uh, three weeks to a month um, before the House rises on uh, June 6th. If uh, the House rises on June 6th and it's not done, uh, then it's not going to be uh, feasible till next September when we come back. Uh, so I'm hoping that by June 6th it reaches third reading and gets um, proclaimed. And then uh, basically it could be done quite quickly. It's uh, assigned somebody within the Ministry of uh, Community Safety uh, to sit with Bell and go through all of the areas that have the 1-800 number and uh, do the the call forward. So when um, this uh, cell tower dials 911, here's where they need to go. If when this uh, residence uh, or area dials 911, here's where the 911 needs to be forwarded to. So um, a few people sit together and they get it done and then it's done forever. Fantastic. Well, let's hope for that best case scenario. Like you said, if everything goes perfectly smoothly uh, in, in politics, sometimes that's that's a tough bet. <laughs> but we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed in this case. I, I agree. I agree. And I don't want to scare people off from uh, coming to uh, visit the north. Uh, we have lots to offer. And if you like camping and, and uh, hiking and biking, there's lots. Please do come. Um, if you are in an area that doesn't have 911, there's a... Uh, a heightened level of awareness now. You will see the 1-800 number posted everywhere, but if everything goes well by uh, middle of June, it should be all settled and 911 should be everywhere. Fantastic. Well, we will hopeful be hopeful that that is the case, and uh, and absolutely, the Northern Ontario is beautiful, and people should check it out if they if they can if they get up there over the summer holidays and uh, take in the beauty that is Ontario and especially Northern Ontario. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much today for coming on the show, France, and uh, discussing this bill and the importance of making sure we get 911 everywhere across the province consistently. Uh, Again, it's a shocker that it's not in place already, but thank you for leading the charge on it. We appreciate it. Oh, we can do this and, and, and we'll get it done. Thank you. Merci et bonne journée. Now, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk to someone from the OPP, Constable Ed Sanchuk, about a 12-year-old boy who had a very, no good, very bad day. Uh, we and it's, it's still on the theme of 911, so stay with us. Uh, we will be right back after this. Hello, hello again. It is your Monday afternoon edition of London Live. Mike Stubbs is on vacation, some very well-deserved vacation. Hardest working man in radio, I say. And we were talking about 911 before the break, and we're going to talk about 911 now after the break. Uh, there are some areas in the province that don't have access to the service, but here in the London region, thankfully we do. Uh, in in this case, it's a story about someone who took advantage of that 911 access for a not appropriate reason. And to join us on the line to talk about this more is Constable Ed Sanchuk with Norfolk OPP. Uh, and he's going to explain more about what this story is all about. Constable Sanchuk, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this case out of the Simcoe area, correct? Correct. And thanks for having me. This is a very important message we need to get out to everyone with regards to the importance of when you need to call 911. Now, take us through this incident because, uh, you know, raising kids, little ones as they're growing up, sometimes things feel like a really big deal to them. But, you know, to the rest of us, it's like, oh, no, this is this is not that big of a deal like washing dishes, say, like that. What, what happened in this case? <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. I've got a 15-year-old boy and an 11-year-old girl going on 21, and I've already sat down and explained the importance of 911. And I think it's a great opportunity for all parents and caregivers to sit down and talk to their children about the importance of when you need to call 911. In this case here on Thursday, May 9th, just shortly after 940 in the evening hours, officers attended an address in Norfolk County after a 12-year-old boy called 911. As officers arrived on scene, it was determined that a parent asked their son to get off the Internet and to help wash some dishes when their child became upset and contacted the police. When we did attend the address, the officers were informed by the young boy that he wanted a new, the police to find him a new family. Um, so this is a great reminder for all parents and caregivers to speak to their children about the importance of 911 and to explain to them that it should only be called for emergencies only. No kidding. Oh, poor guy. He said he wanted a new family. That's, that's rough. He was having a bad day. Yeah, they're definitely having a bad day. I think the, what it comes down to is that, you know, when, you, when, we, have, when we look at uh, 911 calls, uh, people need to realize that when we respond to 911 calls, it takes a minimum of two officers to attend that call. And by the time we receive the call, attend the call, and clear the call for service, it's approximately 30 minutes. So when we have an in- incident like this nature here, you're now taking officers away from another 911 call that could be an emergent situation. So we're just asking people to make sure you sit down, talk to your kids, talk to them when they should call anyone, when they shouldn't. Obviously, you know, when you have a crime in progress, you have a motor vehicle collision, uh, you have, you know, somebody you need to save somebody's life, there's a fire, by all means, call 911 or if there's a crime in progress. When you don't call 911 is when you are told to wash the dishes, when you're told to get off the Internet, um, to, to look for directions, or to tell us about raccoons that are on your property. Uh, time and time again, we're having people contact 911, and it's a waste of resources, a waste of taxpaying dollars, and it's simply put, it's putting other inst- other other people in our community at risk because we're now answering these calls when we could be focusing our attention on the serious nature calls in in general. I think that's really an important uh, facet of these types of incidents to point out that you've you've highlighted there, uh, Ed, is is that the manpower uh, that it takes to clear a call like this, people often will probably not realize uh, that there are protocols, like you've said, that you have to follow uh, in order to make sure that everyone is safe, even if it is just an accidental call. Uh, It it takes up a lot of time and energy. And and as you said, people don't really understand that sometimes. Well, you know what, the use of 911 for police, fire, medical, medical emergencies when someone's health, safety, or property is in jeopardy or crimes in progress. And in an emergency, every second counts. So when you dial 911, you're going to get that operator. You're going to have officers responding, fire or ambulance, whatever the case may be. But we're just asking people, if you don't have an emergency, you can always contact our non-emergency number, which is one 310-1122 for non-emergencies. And accidental calls or abuse of 911 ties up emergency lines, communicators, and officers, which could result in slower response times to a real emergency, and that's risking the safety of people who may need urgent help. Absolutely. And uh, as we've said, those accidental calls like pocket dials, uh, it's important to you know stay on the line for those. Or if you've realized you've accidentally made one, the operators will probably be trying to get back in touch with you to determine whether or not this is an actual situation. So don't be afraid to talk to them. Make sure you're clearing, clearing any misapprehension up. But uh, in the future, you know, try to lock your phone a little bit better. Absolutely. We do. We still have people contacting 911. It might be a pocket dial, whatever the case may be. But what we now are finding is people are hanging up the phone, not talking to our communicators or operators or dispatchers. And now we're sending two officers to attend that area. And I know one night we spent over 45 minutes looking for a pocket dial. So again, taking resources away. If you do happen to pocket dial 911, by accident, of course, uh, make sure you stay in a line. They're going to ask you a series of questions to make sure you're okay because there are times when people will call 911 when they say they've accidentally called, they don't need the police, yet we are now responding to a domestic violence situation. So it's very, very important for people to understand that you know victims do contact 911 and pretend they accidentally called 911 in order to get police response. So we just need people to stay in the line, and we are going to send officers out to see you, physically talk to you to make sure everything is okay.
And that's, uh, you know, that's a, it's it's a great thing to know that uh, we have such uh, very well-trained operators and obviously law enforcement officials and, and other emergency response teams who are out there uh, that, that are able to discern th- what, what the path forward is in those types of situations and be able to tell what's actually an accident from, you know, a, a call, a literal call for help. Yeah, definitely. You know, my hats, uh, my, my hats go off to the dispatchers and call takers. They do a phenomenal job. Our 911 call takers, you know, they're the ones listening to what's happening at the other end of that phone. And for us responding to the call, they're, they're actually providing us with that information. So, you know, in all honesty, their, their job is to keep all of us safe. And, you know, they're, they're the true un- unsung heroes that are behind that phone, making sure people are getting that necessary help. So, you know what, I just want to thank all of our call takers and dispatchers. They do a wonderful job day in, day out. And all the police officers around the province that respond to these calls on a, on a regular basis. Very appropriate that we're talking a little bit about uh, Police Week later on in the show and that we uh, talked about the 911 system in the in the segment earlier with uh, MPP François Lena from uh, the Nickel Belt. So, uh, Constable Sanchuk, thank you so much for your time today. And fingers crossed we don't hear about any other incidents where uh, 12-year-olds are unhappy with their chores. No, not at all. Thank you very much for having me. And it's a great, great opportunity to get the message out to people. So have a great day. You as well. And now it's time for us to head over to Jacqueline LaBelle with the news. Welcome back. We are now officially into hour two of the show on this Monday afternoon. It's a little gloomy out there, overcast. You might see some drizzle, all that sort of thing. We're sitting at seven degrees. It really doesn't feel like May, does it? I mean, I just was hoping that the weather was going to be so much better by this time. But then again, Victoria Day weekend always seems to be like it's a a throw of the dice, a roll of the dice to see if it's going to actually be nice weather or not. So I'll just keep my fingers crossed that later in the week things start to look better for everybody who might go out camping and and, and do all sorts of that or if you've got travel on the mind. Now, our next guest has just come back from a big trip. So she's been doing a lot of traveling later and she's also jetting off on another uh, adventure in the next little while. This person is Megan Walker, Executive Director of the London Abused Women's Centre, and she was just over in Paris, France last week for the W7 Summit, and that was held at UNESCO headquarters in Paris. And that was all about the Women's Summit. It's talking about how to reduce violence against women and uh, all of the initiatives that are happening globally. So London's Abuse Women's Centre was one of uh, just a handful of Canadian organizations, less than a handful, really, just a few uh, organizations were included on this international summit where they had roundtable discussions, all these fantastic uh, uh, opportunities to share ideas on how to improve quality of life for women all over the world. And Megan joins us on the line now to discuss more about how this went. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you have a packed schedule. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, I'm so appreciative of the opportunity. Thank you. Now, as as I was saying, you are a very busy lady in general, but in recently more so, you've just come back from across the pond from Paris, France, uh, for the W7 meetings on gender equality. Tell us how that experience went. It was the most amazing experience that I've had in my 30-year career. Um, We were called together to meet as women, to come up with recommendations to provide to the G7 countries. Um, So those are, of course, from um, the seven G7 uh, uh, countries, Um, and um, to to make recommendations about moving forward with gender equality policies, ending male violence against women, and one of 
the most significant things to come out of that was the acknowledgement that what we do need is a feminist approach, and that is, in fact, the only approach that the G7 uh, leaders can take to profoundly transform unequal power uh, relations between women and men. And so that was, for me, a really big takeaway from this. I mean, there were so many takeaways. But to specifically have recommendations um, that the G7 leaders recognize that the feminist approach is the approach that has to be taken was quite significant. Now, can you share with us some of those uh, recommendations that the uh, working groups kind of came together to talk about and put forward to uh, that or that will be eventually put forward to the G7 ministers? What Were there any any specific items that you can tell us a little bit about? I can. So there were a number of recommendations that were brought forward, and we are not fully aware at this point as to which of the recommendations have been adopted by um, the uh, status of women kind of equivalents across the G7 nations, um, the ministers that attended. But we, we will know that information fairly shortly. Um, but basically, they are all the things we've been talking about for many, many years. So increasing financial resources um, to feminist uh, associations, um, to assist them ensuring that all women have immediate access to service. They recommended that women and girls be um, involved um, and ensure that they have a, a voice at the table so they are always participating in the decision-making process. And that was something I actually stood up and spoke about when I was there because it's so important that we hear from those who are so impacted by gender inequality and male violence against women. And, and that means not just the loudest voice in the, in the room, but it means reaching out to those who don't even know the discussion is happening at a higher level, um, those who are most vulnerable and marginalized in society. And so I was really pleased to see that recommendation. Um, there was a recommendation around um, legislative changes so that um, there be a combination of uh, legislation. Um, they particularly mentioned legislation around um, online bullying and online harassment and online violence, um, and that there be data collection. One of the things that happens right now, not only in Canada, of course, but around the entire world, is that there's no consistent way to um, achieve um, the measurable outcomes and show those measurable outcomes of the work that we're all doing internationally. And so that was an important recommendation for us as well, because we've always advocated that data collection be um, really at the forefront of the work we're doing to show how important it is that we're here doing this work. Um, and then there was a, a recommendation to ensure that we fight violence against women in all its forms, including in prostitution and trafficking and intimate partner violence and online violence and um, harassment um, and sexualized violence and, and female genital mutilation and child marriage, so that there's a fight against all of those forms of violence through prevention, protection, support, assistance and justice. And one of the things that I thought was really um, important at the end, at the closing ceremonies, all of the ministers came together to speak to those of us that were um, had been participating and made it very clear, particularly the German secretary, that um, reproductive rights are human rights. And that's something, of course, that sometimes we feel threatened by. But 
um, reproductive rights around this world are human rights, and women have access to choose their own uh, reproductive rights. And I think that's very, very important. So, I mean, it was really powerful. It was really significant. The closing speaker at the conference was Emma Watson, who is an actress probably best known for her role as Hermione in uh, the Harry Potter series. And she was so strong and passionate and um, so inspiring and really inspiring to see such a young woman um, so publicly taking the stage, particularly around some of the issues that are more controversial. Yes, that's true. She, uh, Emma Watson, certainly has, um, you know, hit this, this, the international stage in in a, in a more political fashion in the last number of years than than previously as she was growing up. And I think that's, uh, you know, a, a really nice natural progression as someone, you know, becomes their own person as they, they grow up and they yeah. learn who they are. Uh, it's it's nice to see individuals finding their voice politically as well. So that's, that's awesome that she was involved in that conference last week. Um, Megan, let's talk a little bit about how it felt to be there and see all of these different groups coming together, all these different individuals. How many people were part of, I guess, the discussions that you were in? Because there were two groups from Canada, obviously Locke, represented by you, and then we had the group from Nova Scotia that was there. What, how diverse was the crowd in terms of uh, from different areas of the world that taking part of those discussions? Oh, it was very diverse. We actually, there was Persons Against Non-State Torture in Nova Scotia, there was Locke in London, and then there was also a representative of the Canadian um, Native Women's Association. And I was happy to see that because we hadn't seen that on the list previously. So there were about three three, um, groups from Canada, but, you know, it was so powerful to hear from women from Africa who talked about um, their experiences with female genital mutilation and their work to end it, who talked about the issue of child marriage. Sometimes as young as seven years old, girls are being married. Um, it was really impactful to hear them talk about the incredible dangers they face every day because they're women and how even speaking out can result in um, beheading, can result in uh, uh being held and incarcerated for a lifetime. What we sometimes take for granted in Canada um, is is just, when you hear the other side, it's just, I'm so grateful to live in Canada. And although I continue to advocate that more needs to be done, I will always carry with me the stories I heard of other women around the world who don't have the same opportunities and who, who in fact, um, are, are punished and tortured for using their voices. And I, we spoke at one time about the use of torture in women in Canada and how we continue to advocate that there be legislation specific to non-state torture in Canada and when we spoke to the women from Africa about that they and said, you know, what you're describing is torture, and they all said, yes, it is torture what we experience every day in, in our uh, country or our city, and, and we all know it, and we talk about it, but nothing gets done. And I thought, you know, to some degree, they are more progressive on speaking about it than we are in Canada, because when we try to raise the issues of torture against women, particularly in pornography or prostitution or trafficking, we're always told by politicians, oh, we don't want to listen to that, we don't want to hear that, and or we're told by others that how can that be possible, that just doesn't exist, and yet in Africa and these countries, 
it's so prevalent um, and and people know it exists, but nobody wants to do anything about it. I mean, so it, it was just such a moving and powerful experience for me to be witness and hear these stories and know that it, uh, no matter where we live, this is a struggle women are in together. And one of the things I really value and love about working at the London Abuse Women's Center is our, one of our principles and beliefs is that First of all, no woman woman is safe until all women are safe. And secondly, that the decisions we make here at the London Views Women's Center, policy decisions or, or uh, you know, beliefs, um, you know, in London, Ontario, must have a positive impact on women and girls around the world. And that that was so um, important for me to say to these young women that we met. And so I was so, so proud to work at Locke, knowing that that's our stand. That was actually leading right into my next question, which was going to be how will, you know, what you experienced at, at the W7 Summit, how will it inform any, any work that goes on in the future at, at Locke? And I think that kind of dovetails nicely with what you've been saying that, you know, decisions that we make here in, in Canada, in London specifically, they do have an impact and they should have an impact, hopefully, on individuals elsewhere and, and you know, bettering lives and conditions for everyone. Oh, it's so important, and and there is so much information that I've brought back to present to the team and to our board of directors, and um, some of the recommendations I think um, we we can also adopt as recommendations uh, to continue to support the work of the global community. And I'm really happy to bring that those forward to our next board meeting and staff meeting and continue to consult with the women that we serve around that. I mean, it's so incredible how we take for granted um, that women and girls can go to university and there are grants and things of that nature for women and girls in Canada to be able to pursue that. But we need to recognize that around the world, many girls don't have the opportunity ever to go to university or ever even to a elementary school for learning. And it's a huge barrier towards women's equality rights. And what we need to do is recognize as a, as a policy statement at our agency that you know we we cannot celebrate the achievements of women with equal, with um, educational rights in Canada, knowing that mo- many many girls around the world are disqualified from ever seeking an education. And so again, for me, it's all about raising what we do in this country, in this city, and across North America to a higher standard. That we're not going to be able to. Um, recognize the success of those policies unless they include women and girls internationally, globally, and in countries where they are so prohibited from uh, accessing education, accessing health care, accessing services, um, still don't have the right to vote, and and are you know, still being mutilated on a daily basis or forced to marry at age six or seven. I mean, these are significant issues that we need to come to terms with as a country and do whatever we can to try to elevate their status in society. 
Well, Megan, thank you, uh, you know, for sharing what you've learned and what you've experienced at the W7 Summit and for your continued work uh, with partners around the world to try and improve those conditions that you're talking about and raise awareness of it, because you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, work, the work that's done in Canada and in London is, is one thing and it's something that needs to continue, but we need to make sure that we're keeping an eye and doing what we can to help others uh, overcome the challenges that they face and, and the real and present dangers that are there. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this and everything that's gone on in Paris. And uh, on your on your next trip, I, I hope that it is just as fruitful uh, and, and as uh, you know rewarding in, in what you learn and what you experience. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. That was Megan Walker, Executive Director of the London Abused Women's Centre, talking about her experience in Paris last week at the W7 Summit. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to London Police and about one new initiative that they have running for Police Week. Welcome back to the program, London Live, on your Monday afternoon. I hope that it's been a gentle re-entry to your work week after the fun of the weekend. Hopefully you had a good time. I myself was out on Saturday night at a bull riding competition at the lovely Budweiser Gardens. Now, I've said on social media when I posted from there that uh, I've been to a few athletic events in my time, but bull riding may just take the cake, and I think it did. It was quite quite the uh, athletic entertainment. We'll put it that way. It was quite something. Uh, a lot of uh, skill goes into being able to uh, work in a ring with bulls. They are the it's just unimaginable that this is that this is something that is done and and generally people leave unscathed. It's it's pretty cool. Anyway, there was a, a neat portion of my weekend. Got to go out and spend some time with some friends. It was really nice. And now we are back into the work week. And someone and a bunch of people actually constantly who are working hard are our London police officers and also our civilian members of the London Police Department. They are constantly working hard, making sure that, uh, you know, the city is is serviced in terms of its needs for emergency uh, personnel. And they're doing something interesting this week because it is, in fact, policing week of, of this year. And Craig Needles had uh, the chief of the day, Haley. She's a, a Wortley Road public school student. She's uh, been appointed chief for the day, and so she's making the rounds, inspecting all the different departments and doing some pretty cool things. So one other facet of this week that uh, the department is running, it's called Humans of LPS. Now, any fans on Instagram know that there's an account called Humans of New York, and it's a photographer who goes around and profiles just everyday people. So London police are tapping into that. And joining us on the line to discuss a little bit more the purpose of this is Constable Sendasha Bow. Sandasha, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about not only Police Week, but this very cool initiative that you're running on social media called Humans of London Police Service. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with that. Well, we're launching a version of uh, the popular social media series, Humans of New York. It started today. Uh, we're putting out information in the morning and in the afternoon, and it's a series that shares stories of some of our sworn and civilian members, why they chose to uh, work with London Police, uh, why they chose a career in policing, or uh, as one of those civilian members within the police department. 
That's amazing. And, you know, anyone who's on social media, on Instagram, that sort of thing. Uh, I, I know I myself follow Humans of New York, and it's it's really a cool snapshot. I mean, no pun intended, <laughs> into the lives of people around the world, not just in New York, the, the photographer behind it. He goes everywhere. Um, but it, it, I'm looking forward to taking in these these snapshots of LPS members because it's it's something that you don't always hear about, those behind the scenes stories of what gets people into into this career. Definitely. It's something extra that we're really, really excited to be putting out there just to humanize the badge and let the public know about some of our members. And it's interesting, too, because the very first picture was uh, Constable Becky Elliott, and she's out with the uh, uh, chief for the day uh, youngin from Wortley Road Public School, Haley. She's she's the chief for the day out making the rounds. So it's neat to, to see people names even that we hear in the media to understand their stories a bit more. Yes, definitely. Uh, just getting some of their backgrounds and, and finding out why they chose their career. It's definitely interesting and not something that you hear about every day. Certainly not. And now these pictures and the captions that go with them, uh, you've mentioned they're going out onto uh, basically all the, the department's social media channels, right? And that's going all week long? Yes, we'll be putting out uh, two separate members, both in the morning and in the afternoon throughout the week, so Monday to Friday, uh, both sworn and civilian. And we're hoping to put them out uh, in the morning and then uh, shortly after 1 o'clock in the afternoon uh, to ensure that uh, we have stuff out there throughout Police Week. It's interesting because I know that um, with Humans of New York, they often do uh, a series, you know, where they might have uh, one person that they've taken four pictures of. So there are four different captions, a part of their story. And people really engage with it. You get comments on those posts saying, I can't wait for for section four or part four. And and they're just very engaged. And and I would imagine that it will be the same uh, with with the account that's been going on uh, with London Police Services account doing this, because, uh, you know, the work that officers and, and civilians do, it's very intriguing. And, and as we've said, it's, it's the stories behind the badge. It's information that people don't usually have access to. Definitely. I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting and uh, it's engaging. So I'm looking forward as well to reading some of those comments and answering some of those questions if we're able to. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, we know that officers try very, very hard to do is in is foster that type of relationship with the public, uh, making sure that people know that uh, police are there to, to help you and not, uh, you know, not to harm you. So they, they want to make sure that that message is getting out there. So it's cool that you've mentioned, you know, engaging with people in the comments. Definitely. Uh, we've already received just on Facebook alone, 23 comments on the first post this morning. So uh, again, looking forward to repo- responding to some of those questions and, and just reading everything. Absolutely. Now, this is, as we said, it's, it's part of uh, a longer list of activities that are going on throughout Police Week, which is running. Uh, I mentioned before that we have the chief for the day that was out and about making her rounds. Um, we, what else is going on throughout the week? Well, tomorrow we're going to be launching Project Santa Sneakers. It's a new program. Uh, We're going to be delivering nearly 100 pairs of sneakers to kids in need at more than a dozen London schools. And the funds for the sneakers were donated. And it's also uh, supporting the LPS Project Santa during the Christmas season. So just something exciting that we're able to do for the community. Uh, We also have Coffee with a Cop on Wednesday from 9 until 11 a.m. at McDonald's on uh, Dundas Street East, so 1950 Dundas Street. And not only do you get to have coffee for free, but you'll have the chance to meet and chat with some of our police officers. Uh, 
Police Week is about celebrating policing. And so it's just, it's a great opportunity to share a number of different things with the community um, and to uh, promote some of the events that we have going on here as well. I think it'll be a really great opportunity for people to to come out and have some conversations and build some understanding and, and bridges between different communities. I think it'll be uh, it'll be a great week for everyone involved. I hope so. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, Sandasha, thank you so much for your time today. And be sure to follow LPS on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. They're everywhere, multimedia platform. And uh, make sure that you're tuning into that Humans of LPS series. Sandasha, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, and now to the news with Jacqueline LaBelle. Welcome back to the show, London Live, on your Monday afternoon. We're nearing the end of our time. We've got about 20 minutes left of the program. And something that we are now going to talk about, I mean, this is good news. I mean, we've been talking about how the weather is not that great right now, that you wouldn't necessarily think that we're into May. Uh, You know what? Yesterday when I was out and about, it almost felt like it was more say October, November type weather. It was real gross, real windy, real cold, just did not make you want to be outside. It reminded me very much of flu season when you get the chills and it's gross and everyone's feeling pretty run down and their immune systems are suffering. Oh, no good. Well, this flu season has just technically wrapped up. And the health unit, London Middlesex Health Unit, Middlesex London Health Unit, I should say, they sent out their final uh, flu report for the season just last week. And we got the final numbers. And honestly, we did pretty well. Like we saw a big drop in the number of influenza B cases, which is really nice. Uh, You know, our influenza A cases were kind of around the same. But honestly, when you look at the at the numbers and, and get a little bit of analysis, it doesn't look bad. Now, to talk with us more about that is Mary Lou Albanese from the Middlesex London Health Unit, Manager of Infection Control, and she joins us to discuss what's been going on. Mary Lou, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Oh, you're welcome. So we've had uh, the last seasonal flu report for this part of the season uh, that's gone out. Uh, I think it went out late last week to, to London Media. Well, tell me a little bit about the flu season that was. How was it? Was it a bad one or a moderate one? Um, It actually wasn't uh, a bad one in comparison to, say, last year. The season was uh, moderate. Uh, We didn't have as uh, many uh, cases as last year. Of course, we don't know um, the total uh, number of uh, cases because uh, we don't know or number of individuals who get sick. We just know those that we get laboratory confirmed cases. So what we do know is that the influenza A, we had uh, 492 and last year we had 422. The big difference between this year and last year was the influenza B um, in that this year we had only nine cases, but last year we had 432 influenza B cases. So what that was uh, obviously a considerable drop. And uh, last year we did see six AB cases, and uh, this year we did not see uh, any AB cases. As well, uh, this year we saw 20 uh, deaths 
and last year we had 43 deaths. So those are some of the things that we do know uh, about the two seasons. There's still some more analysis that will be made about uh, the two years, and uh, we will uh, be looking at that further, and the provincially uh, Public Health Ontario will look at that and we'll know more um, uh, as it all um, uh, as the whole season completes. It's really interesting to see the drop in those figures, especially in the uh, the B strain. That's a that's a massive drop to have to have seen in that case. Do we? I guess, as you said, you know, you'll be you'll be looking over the next little while at, at perhaps analyzing those numbers more, figuring out what led to those, uh, I guess, declines in some of those stats. Uh, is it safe to kind of say, well, maybe not safe, uh, but should we say uh, kudos to the flu vaccine, the flu shot? More people may be getting that this year. Any any early indications of of what led to the decreases? In terms of the number of people who received the flu shot, that that we really do not know again because we don't get the numbers now. You know, individuals go to their family doctor, they go to uh, their pharmacist. Again, we'll get those numbers because the province does distribute the vaccine that those numbers will come out uh, provincially later on. Um, the efficacy of the vaccine that um, we'll know as well. We do know that uh, it, the vaccine was more effective. It was um, H1N1 uh, primarily, and the vaccine was more effective. So um, those that was uh, the strain in the community. So those who did get the vaccine uh, were protected or would have not been uh, severely affected. So those are some of the things that um, that we do know. And again, getting the vaccine is definitely always, always recommended as um, uh, most important and then taking uh, additional precautions um, as in washing your hands, staying away or, you know, protecting oneself um, from those that are infected um, and uh, coughing into one's sleeve. And if one is sick, uh, remaining at home and, and, and not uh, going to, to work um, or public places during those times of infectivity. Absolutely. All really great tips. And whether it's flu season or not, right? Like that's, yeah. that's uh, always always good things to keep in mind. Best practices, if you will. Um, one thing that I, I did want to ask you about, Mary Lou, since, since you brought up that really great point of uh, we don't know of all of the instances of people having the flu, only the ones that were, uh, you know, lab confirmed. What is the threshold then for, for having a sample sent off to be confirmed of whether it's the flu or not? Because, uh, you know, as you said, a lot of people may not go to their doctor for it. Maybe they'll just ride it out at home and and try and treat it uh, using you know the old-fashioned remedies of rest and uh, soup and things like that. How how is it that uh, someone might be tested actually to see if what they have is the flu? Well, there are um, doctors often at offices that are considered sentinel sites. So if someone goes to that office and they are experiencing the symptoms of flu, then that office will do uh, the appropriate. Um, nasal swabs to test for the flu um, and as well. Um, Then as well, there are um, long-term care homes in which all long-term care homes, if they're experiencing um, uh, um, residents who have symptoms, they will test certain number of residents to see if they have uh, 
are actually uh, positive for the flu. That is a provincial um, a protocol that is in place um, uh, right now. That's interesting. That's how they become. Yeah, that's how they determine, and from that they can pretty much extrapolate the percentage of of individuals um, that uh, um, have been infected. Yeah. And that's very interesting as well. It makes perfect sense that especially long-term care homes would be uh, a center for uh, perhaps more vigorous monitoring in that case, because yeah. it is a vulnerable population, immunocompromised yeah. often. And it, it, the flu, it just it hits our older generation harder than the, than the rest usually. Yes. Yes. And they do get vaccinated. They do um, have the option of getting vaccinated and they do have a higher uh, vaccination rate. And often, you know, it's flu is one of the possible viruses, uh, respiratory viruses and bacteria that they can pick up uh, throughout the um, the season between September and May. May, So it's one of the common um laboratory uh, uh, th- um, uh, things that we we check through the through the season if they have respiratory symptoms yes we we pay close close attention to long-term care homes absolutely yeah because I mean the last thing you want to do is is have um uh, individuals who are ill or a large number, and then it, it becomes yeah. an outbreak or spread. So you obviously yeah. health health uh, um, managers here in the city and the region everywhere really they they always try their best to to clamp down on those situations before they get out yeah. of out of hand. Oh yes, definitely yes. We put the, we put them in their um, we we put them in in um, outbreak uh, so that way we put them in special outbreak uh, so that way they can contain. Uh, the uh, spread of the, the the virus or bacteria, so that way only those residents that are uh, sick, so it's contained as much as possible. Absolutely. And, and so now this is uh, the stats that we were talking about. They've come down in the final report for the season. Um, so that means that we've got, uh, you know, a few months now before things pick up again. Typically, we see the virus uh, rear its head again in, in September-ish, Correct. That's right. Yep, yep. We we may see a few stragglers now uh, through to the end of May, but then um, it settles down until September. Yes, and then we start up again. <laughs> Doesn't seem like a long time, but uh, yes, it's uh, it is a bit of a reprieve. And fingers crossed, everyone will uh, take take heed of the uh, I guess best practices that you were mentioning before of you know keeping your hands washed as 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 you know when you when you can wash them frequently and uh, you know making sure that you're sneezing and coughing into your sleeve like you said and as long as everyone does that then fingers crossed we should try and uh, limit the spread of any residual flu bacteria that's hanging around. That's correct. And if you don't have access to hand washing facilities, using hand sanitizer uh, is an alternative. Well, Mary Lou, thank you so much for your time today to talk about this uh, latest flu report, the last one of this 2018 season, uh, as we are now well into 2019, the year, and uh, have a a restful few months before the next flu season kicks up. Thank you very much. Okay, now fingers crossed we can all also avoid any more flu virus infestations in our workplaces and in our homes. We want everyone to be healthy and enjoy the summer. We need to take a quick break, but we will be right back on London Live on 980 CFPL.
Welcome back. We are nearing the end of our Monday afternoon show on London Live. Thanks so much for tuning in today. It's been really fun. We've talked a lot about a, a, about a lot of things, some big stories in the news. One that we haven't talked about yet is this WestJet sale. Yeah. WestJet, which is like one of the biggest airlines in Canada, has been sold for $5 billion. I feel like we should insert a little Dr. Evil, evil billion dollars, uh, <laughs> to Onyx Corporation, which is a private equity firm. It's worth about $31 billion. So ugh, what's $5 billion for an airline, right? <laughs> so it's still kind of like uh, developing in terms of us uh, understanding the impact of this sale, what it really means mean, excuse me. Uh, but certainly it is a big shakeup in terms of travel and airfare in the country, in Canada. WestJet obviously flies out of London. They have uh, routes all over Canada, all over North America in general, even into Europe now. Uh, you can you can fly over into uh, Ireland with them, which is pretty cool. I know Craig Needles did that a couple years ago for his sister's wedding, uh, was able to fly with WestJet. It was pretty cool. They really do open up, you know, the world by having a, an airline like that in, in Canada. But someone who is flying later today slash early, early tomorrow is fantastic producer extraordinaire Matt McInnes, who is manning the booth on the other side of the of the glass today for me. Hey, Matt. Thanks for letting me speak. Hey, anytime. I'm always happy to, to hear about exciting travel stories because you are heading off on an excursion. Yes. Not yes. with WestJet, though. No, not with WestJet. Um, we're actually flying out of Detroit, me and a few friends, um, and we are going to Viva Las Vegas. Ooh. Yeah, so that should be exciting. Um, but yeah, I'm still kind of like figuring out some complications and getting like the last minute little, uh, oh, no. figuring some last minute things out. Um, but we're, a few of my friends are slowly starting to, um, check into their check in their seats and get all that stuff figured out um, and my one friend just messaged me earlier before I started today and now I'm flying with um, Spirit Airlines okay. so they are kind of like the alternative I guess to like swoop so they're okay. like the cheap airline discount, um, airline. discount airline for the states right. um, so our flights from Detroit to Vegas were only 322. So round that's trip. how much round trip, and that's Canadian. That is a good deal. Or, yeah, 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 round trip Canadian. Yeah. So that's not bad at all, right? Um, but now we're starting to realize why it was so cheap, right? Mm. Um, and so my one friend just sent us the price here, um, and this is just for the flight there. Okay. So this isn't for everything. This is just for the flight there. So for his checked, so for his seat, he picked a seat because we kind of want to all be together on yeah. our flight to Vegas, right? Um, and for, I'm not sure if he had one checked bag or two, but altogether it came up to $142. In extra fees. Extra fees. And that's that's US. So I did a little conversion here. Yeah. And 142 US to Canadian is $191. Um, and that's, that's just for the way there. Oh. So what we also need to do is when we're coming back, we have like... Um, we have a, to get on another flight. And yeah. so each time we get on a new flight, we have to pay for that, pay for our baggage again. Oh, they literally get you coming and going. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So it, it's kind of annoying. And you kind of see now why those, uh, sometimes those cheap airlines, yeah. why they, how they can be so cheap, right? Because they're charging you for the other stuff. Exactly. And uh, it's not really all that cheap once you factor in. Like, exactly. I mean, there are a lot of people who are able to travel with just a carry on. I've done it once. I, I don't travel a mm -hmm. lot. I'm, I'm not a, a massive fan of flying. Like I will fly to get to point A from point A to point B, no problem. But I'm a bit of a nervous flyer. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, I mean, 
I don't fly enough to be experienced with and, it and, and, and neither do I, right? So yeah. and like we, when you do, when you see that um, when you see that fee like three twenty two, you're like, oh wow, it's so yeah. cheap. Why not not just book that? Like so we're great. already paying for so much there. Yeah. But now you're like, I'm gonna have to pay. For, like if we wanna, well, we were, we're definitely gonna have to pay for our baggage each time if right, when we yeah. do a layover. Mm-hmm. We only have one layover, thankfully, but. Yeah, that, that's Still, definitely going to hurt the bank a little bit. That's brutes. Don't yeah. it's brutes. Brutal. So people should definitely um, prepare when you're flying with those cheap airlines to uh, yeah. maybe uh, save a little bit extra money for those fees that you aren't expecting. Exactly. So yeah. it's not exactly as advertised. Well, Devin Peacock uh, was talking about uh, discount airlines a little earlier in the day in the newsroom, and we were talking about, like, it's, yes, you're saving, but what at, at what cost? Mm-hmm. Because there, exactly. are, there was scuttlebutt out there in the universe of uh, an airline possibly offering flights where you're standing up. <laughs> and so you'd be like strapped in like harness style, which to me just feels like a roller coaster. And, and guess what? I don't like those either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't know if I want to be standing up uh, that no. high in the air. Uh-huh, no, I, I feel like that would be, I mean, at least you could like lean back on it and you'd be, you know, in a harness or whatever. But I just, I, oh, yeah. I don't is, think is so. It worth, is it worth saving that much? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. that becomes the question. So I think I would pay to have a seat. But isn't that kind of sad? You got to pay to have a seat. Mm-hmm. on a plane yeah. like shouldn't that just be standard yeah uh, I agree I hope I wish I mean any plane that <laughs> I go day. on I one day I'm gonna have a seat that's just uh, unless something crazy happens and they can invent air travel that's more like time travel time travel that's yeah. what I'm waiting for Teleport time travel there. that's perfect well I hope you have a fantastic time away in uh, Viva Las Vegas thank you Jess I'm counting down the hours counting down the hours 7pm <laughs> I'm done today nice well have a great time and uh, travel safe and on that note we're gonna take a quick break we'll be right back on London Live after this Welcome back. We only have just like a minute, less than a minute to wrap up here. Uh, thanks to all of our guests today who were on talking about all their great stuff that's going on. Make sure you check in on LPS's Twitter and Insta and Facebook accounts because they are doing that great Humans of LPS series for Police Week. Tomorrow, we have a couple of things lined up to tell you about. We are going to talk about uh, Bullying Canada and their call for volunteers for their SMS Buddy program where you can text to help young kids who are going through a tough time and give them some advice. And we'll also have Diane Callan Sutra on. She's talking about toxic culture in cities and how to prevent that from taking over. Thanks so much for tuning in. We will see you tomorrow at one o'clock in the afternoon on London Live.